0: Welcome to Big Blend Radio, where we celebrate variety and how it adds spice to quality of life. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are thrilled to have Edward Green join us to talk about his memoir, it's called On the Fringe, Confessions of a Maverick Anthropologist. It is out now, so go check it out Whether wherever you get books, Amazon, maybe your local bookstore. That's always a good thing. Uh, you know, Nancy and I got excited to hear about his book and, and also, of course, start reading it. Uh, Ted uh, has been through many countries that Nancy and I have, uh Kenya, South Africa, a lot of Africa and around the world. He's a retired American medical anthropologist, and he served as a senior research scientist at the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies, and he later became the director of the AIDS Prevention Research Project, and he's currently research professor at George Washington University. He was also appointed a member of the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS from 2003 to 2007. And served in the Office of AIDS Research Advisory Council for the US based National Institutes of Health from 2003 to 2006. Cool. I, you know, it, he's got a long, long list of things he's done, and that's why he can write a memoir. And, um, I love his memoir because he is very raw honest and, um, very excited to have you here on the show. Ted, how are you?
1: I'm okay. Thank you. How are you?
0: Oh, doing good, doing good. And uh, Nancy and I are excited to hear that you are going back to South Africa, you know, right after we record this in a few days, but, um, you know, that you also uh, share some familiar surroundings. Uh, Kenya, that was, you know, where I was raised as a very young child, and it sounds like we have some similar circles of people that we know.
1: Well, uh, this might go back to when I first became interested in anthropology. Uh, it was probably the night my mother took my brother and me to hear the famous Dr. Louis Leakey give a lecture about his hominid finds in Kenya, held at the Swanky Cosmos Club in Washington, D.C. My mother told us boys that normally we'd have to have a Ph.D. just to walk through the front door, so we'd better keep a low profile and behave ourselves. I was a freshman in junior college. And by the way, women weren't allowed in the Cosmos Club back then. They had to come in a wow. side door. It, things are different now. Anyway, uh, yeah. Dr. Leakey gave a very interesting talk. And at the end, there was time for questions and answers. But I have to say, I was, I was embarrassed over the quality of the questions. Things like, Oh, Dr. Leakey, weren't you afraid of attacks by the Mau Mau's? And this is the, oh the, the 1950s. Weren't you afraid of getting tropical diseases? I mean, nothing even really qualified as a scientific question. So I started to put my hand up to ask a question while well, my brother tried to pull my arm down and hissed at me. Don't, don't embarrass me. Well, <laughs> I, I, I asked a question about. Exactly how we find the how we define tool usage, since this seems to be an important inflection inflection point in human evolution from lower primates to modern man. Well, the great Doctor Lichy said this was the first, <laughs> or he said this is the best question he's heard all evening. He oh. answered my question as well as he could, but suggested that I write to Jane, Doctor Jane Goodall, here of the oh. National Geographic Society, to get the very latest reports about how chimpanzees were you know, trimming branches and sticks so they could push them into rotting logs and pull out termites. Thus encouraged, I followed, followed his advice. And about six months later, I received the letter. Well, to be honest, it was a postcard, but uh, Goodall used very tiny script, and she wrote quite a bit in that diminutive postcard. So uh, when, when I first took my first cultural anthropology uh, course the following year, the professor started to share some rather outdated information about chimpanzees and tool usage, prompting me to put up my hand and say, well, yeah, we used to think that. But I was just talking about this very topic with little a few months ago. And he suggested I write to Jane and She answered me promptly. And so now we know. You know, I don't usually behave this way, but uh, I couldn't resist this opportunity.
0: I, I, You know, I, I love this because I think yeah, anthropology is very much like science, right? In that it's always changing. And I think it's a hard thing for people to swallow, especially, I mean, look at what's happening in the world now. Um, Even when we look at climate change and things like that, that it's like when science changes, a new discovery is found. I, I know that, you know, we were just talking about this the other day, that, you know, one of the oldest, um uh you know, They dug up like a hummingbird in Germany. Like we think of hummingbirds being in the Americas, right? Not in Germany. And people don't believe that, but it's like, yeah, look at what just happened. So it changes everything we know. And that's what happens with science. That's what happens with anthropology. They hold hands. And so it's really hard because people go, well, you keep changing your mind, so therefore it's not true. But it's really, it's every time we have a discovery, isn't that evolution yeah, it's, in itself? It's accumulative.
1: It, and sometimes we have to give up old paradigms and embrace new paradigms
0: mm-hmm. about
1: which more later, because I got in trouble for challenging the prevailing paradigm, uh, about AIDS <laughs> prevention.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, too. I wanted to touch on, um, we were actually in South Africa at that time traveling the country. Uh, Nancy was um, on tour f- with her artwork, raising funds for the cancer association. And we, Ended up doing a lot of, uh, we went to universities. I remember being in a university for dinner and, um, it was one of the, and I wish I could remember where it was. And it was near Ladysmith, I think. And it was an all, um, black university and it was a, a big deal at that time. And yeah. At that time, AIDS was just flourishing, you know? What, and,
1: what, what year, what year was this more or less?
0: Ah, this has got to be the late eighties. I'm thinking late late eighties. Yeah, yeah.
1: Before we had uh, effective cures, treatment or or treatments, I should say, for AIDS.
0: Yeah, and people, I remember the actual, you know, the the head guy of the university, and I was still like in my early teens, like fourteen, maybe thirteen or fourteen years old, going, "Well, AIDS is coming down from Rhodesia on trucks," and we're looking at him like, "What are you talking about?" You know. Because no, everybody had different stories about where AIDS came from. And, yeah. I mean, at one point people were saying it was coming from monkeys. I mean, it was like this whole thing that, um and then, in you know, going, you know, later England and then South Africa, you know, well, sorry, South Africa, then growing up through that, it just, you started to see it here. And um I don't think people really understood and understood the cultures. And that's where I love about your book and your story is that. You started to understand the people instead of just going, here, this is what everyone must do now and not understand because change doesn't happen. You know, when Nancy went around with wildlife conservation, she was doing talks about not killing lions and things like that. And she put up a photo of a lion in a hut at this time. She was talking to different Maasai tribes and one of them in the back threw a spear into the photo of the lion, (laughs) you know, and because Mm -hmm. she didn't understand the culture at that time. And yeah. it took time. And so I think that's important. So going from actually the anthropo- anthropology side to working with the cultures of that moment in current times, I think sometimes going backwards helps to go forwards, right? And actually understand a culture of where they come from and who yeah, they that's, are. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's exactly what I tried to do. To me, uh, the things I did were like anthropology 101, the kinds of things that anybody should have started with. But uh, I don't want to get ahead of uh, the maybe the order of the questions you have.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Let's let's do start actually with your life becoming an anthropologist. Like now, of course, we've got your inspiration for that, right? Um yeah. But also your family not understanding maybe and having a different plan for you, just like what what was happening during AIDS. Hey, this is how you're going to do things, and you being kind of a rebellious person going you know, this is what I'm going to do, your mom probably wasn't real happy with you.
1: No. And by the way, my mom was named Lisa. Maybe I told you that.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, So, well, um, one of the themes in my book is imposter syndrome. And in in my book, I speculate that this goes back to my expulsion from an elite boarding school, Groton, at age 15. My mother seemed to be truly traumatized by this, reminded me quite often especially after the age of 15, that she considered me a failure. My whole life has been a failure. She saw nothing in my future but failure. And and indeed, I was rebellious as a youth, and I liked to smoke and drink beer and hang out with undesirable kids. Yet, part of me wanted to prove my mother wrong. As I, my career began to uh, develop and take off, I always felt deep down that I was really a failure, a fraud, and that the day would come when my colleagues would and the general public would expose me as a total imposter. I was inspired to write this memoir because uh, I learned that I'm far from alone in feelings of low self-confidence. Um, in fact, it was a, a blog discussion on the imposter syndrome a couple of years ago, and I heard it was the second most widely watched or followed of any well-known blogger and medical doctor. So there are many more people out there who suffer from this than we know about. And because most people pr- uh, probably prefer not to admit this about themselves. You know, an, an old classmate from my high school in Korea uh, called me up last week. I, I haven't seen this guy since 1962. And he said, oh, wow, you know, I, I, I suffer from imposter syndrome. And it's great to know that he's not alone in his secret for fears. And thanks for my courage and forthrightness to write this memoir, uh, did uh, one of my professional colleagues who read an early draft of my memoir? He went on and revealed some very personal things like fears he didn't deserve his position. Yet I looked up, up to him as a leading professional in our field. I think we all wear a professional mask that we hide behind, and we fear that people might not, might not like to see what they what's behind our masks.
0: Mm, I, I absolutely agree, and I think it's probably more prevalent than what we think. I think everyone has some degree of imposter syndrome because you know they always said like fake it till you make it, right? Right. right. <laughs> you know, it's part of it. And it's part of our ego needing to move forward. But um not having the self confidence is is difficult, especially when it's you're in a career of academics, academia. You are with your know, professors and, and things that were you can be called out, you know, yet you were also rebelling right. about the system. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's a balance that you were carrying, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think
1: you're right. It's a matter of degree. You know, some people have are, are little affected by it, other people have downright panic attacks at the worst possible time. Uh, yeah. if, uh, in my book, I talk about a disastrous job interview at, at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, I was totally pretty good about myself. They flew me all the way from Mozambique. To Baltimore and and back, because uh, they were you know, really interested in in hiring me. In fact, I, I heard that they'd already planned to hire me, and um, they they asked me for my PowerPoint. You know, this was nineteen ninety four. I'd been living in Africa. I didn't really know what a PowerPoint was, <laughs> mm. so um, you know it was a, a pretty disastrous. Uh... Oh, and all these you know famous in AIDS and public health, all these famous professors at Hopkins and. People from USAID, uh, I I didn't handle it well, and they ended up uh, t- taking back the the offer for the position.
0: Wow. Wow. And, and at the same time, you kind of walked away and, and went into Africa, right, and really working with the people. And I think that's also something really important that people understand. So you're, there's that professor side, here's the people side, and then balancing that. Did working with people help you move forward past the imposter syndrome, or did it make it harder to? I I, I always looked at it. You when as you like, say people, you
1: was... mean like ordinary people in Africa? Yeah, and people Asia in Africa. Yeah, the, the yeah, 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 I always felt more comfortable talking to the you know the vox populi, the 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 average people than I did with uh, fellow professors and people like that. It, it's probably because I know it's because I. Imagine what they expect. And I think, Oh God, I'm really going to let them down when they see how little I actually know. So I, I had intrusive thoughts like that. Mm. But, uh, you know, I come from a long line of successful people, especially on my mother's side, you know, real blue bloods. I was undoubtedly a difficult child, one who would today would be probably diagnosed as hyperactive or ADHD. Mm-hmm. My mother more or less, uh, backed up by, by, an, by my less insistent father had my whole life planned out for me, Groton School, then Yale, where my father went, then at Episcopal bishophood or becoming a professor in an Ivy League school. I rebelled against all that and went out went out of my way to forge my own path. I, I think my mother uh, I think I told my mother once I was starting my sociological or anthropological research with the criminal classes, Then I was slowly work my way up to her privilege class. I was aware I was starting to achieve, perhaps unconsciously, the very career goals that my mother was, you know, uh, gradually pushing me towards. Mm. My older brother brother once commented to me that we three brothers are unlikely to ever be as successful as our father. He was uh, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs and an ambassador to several countries. So my brother said, why should we even try? I thought, hmm, maybe number one son, uh, my, my brother Mark is not going to play the sibling rivalry game with me, so maybe I have a chance. Mm. Not long after this, I pretty much had proof that Mark was indeed not even playing the game. Our younger oh. brother, Brampton, had dyslexia, which meant he would not be competing academically with his two brothers who would soon have PhDs.
0: Wow. And then, at the, then you walked away from that part of it of the academia and decided I'm going into anthropology the advocacy part of it well that, and- that wasn't
1: yeah that wasn't um re- so rebellious as it might sound my great uncle was the chairman of anthropology at harvard and the president of the american anthropological association so uh, you know that yeah. that was the other thing if i wasn't going to be an episcopal bishop then it, it would be fine for me to be uh, an anthropologist just so i was at a uh, an mm. Ivy League university. Mm. But by the way, you may have noticed in my book, there's a I I talk about this, uh, this theory of sibling birth order, mm-hmm. you know, the first born is a keeper of the status quo. And the, the second son needs to overthrow the established order. There was a book by a a Harvard professor uh, called Born to Rebel that tries to uh, approach this question scientifically, but it's, it's kind of interesting.
0: Well, one thing I, too, I wanted to go into, you've got the imposter, you know, syndrome, and then you go, you're, you're in academia, then you go into anthropology, then you end, end up in the world of AIDS prevention, right? And, um, you really rebelled more against the system of everybody wearing condoms. And I remember in Africa, the world of condoms coming, and I mean, it was in schools, we were, you know, it was like these are the new things, and in fact, I I remember as a teenager a friend of mine coming home from like a clinic or something and going, look at all of these condoms, and we blew them up like balloons. Just we were kids, we we're being stupid, yeah. But they were, yeah. but we. Do you know you can't freeze them, but anyway, if you fell them with water, and it was interesting because none of you know it was just this. But here were the white kids, right, which is different than the different tribal folks where they had different ways of working and that's something you really did in regards to looking at what Uganda was doing and um, yeah. try to change things.
1: Well, yeah, let me tell that story. I, I first went to Uganda. Um, I was actually, it was a side trip from a, a consultancy I had in, uh, in Tanzania, which was about AIDS. Anyway, um, I was invited to Uganda for a week. They, they were looking me over uh, for a, a full-time job. I ended up not going there, even though uh, later up, later on, I'd be associated with Uganda and and got a uh, a prize from the president of Uganda. But let me not get ahead of myself. So I go to Uganda in 1993 just for a week, and I did the kinds of things I think an anthropologist would do. You you know, key informant interviewing. I would find I would look for you know, doctors and nurses and religious people and the heads of uh non-profit organizations and uh you know, I, I was it seems like i was the first person to notice that uh incidents which follows hiv prevalence uh started to, was starting to go down uh std rates we now call them stis sexually transmitted infections like syphilis and gonorrhea were on the decline and i, I was quite excited about this and i and yet everybody was still saying in aids prevention the. The best way to prevent AIDS is to, is consistent use of condoms. Uh, wow. then in 1998, I was reading a World Bank book about AIDS and, uh, this jumped out at me. It said, you know, the, uh, HIV is uh, exploding all over Africa in particular. And, um, and yet this one country, this is not true for it, Uganda. Somebody needs to, you know, send a consultant there just to look at what's going on, what the programs are, and what might account, because, because by 1998, uh, it was generally accepted that HIV was going down in Uganda. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wow, I'd love to have that job. Well, the, two weeks later, the phone rings, and it's a, a consulting firm that works with the World Bank. Would I like to go to Uganda and do this very job that was, you know, <laughs> outlined in this book? I said, well, normally, normally I would, but, you know, my father just died and I'm, I'm, I'm I'm feeling sad and depressed. I mean, another time, don't forget to call me back. But, but by the way, what was the job? And it was the the very same job that was described. So I went and did more of the same. And, uh, I came back saying, um, you know, it it was not to do, not to do with condoms. In fact, Data showed that only four condoms per male per year were in use, which is wow. slightly lower than the Africa-wide, uh, you know, statistics. Um,
0: yet, yeah. yeah, so Uganda, they weren't having. So their their AIDS, you know, uh, cases number of AIDS cases was going down. Yet they weren't doing the condoms. Like
1: they weren't doing condoms. What were they doing? They were uh, they were discouraging having multiple concurrent sexual partners. Wow, and they were they were advising young people not to begin to have sex. Uh, you know, if you if you if you've already started, you know, you might want to stop because uh, there's a deadly disease around. And if you haven't started yet, good. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. don't, don't get started. So I said it was you know it was behavior change. It was a behavioral approach. It wasn't a technological fix like condoms mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. testing. And and now in later years uh drugs. We we didn't have effective drugs back then.
0: No. So no, we um no. I, no, I, I people, people didn't want to hear that. No. No, because you were talking about behavioral changes, but it's also cultural. I mean that's a cultural backbone of Africa. I mean I, I got kicked out Did of they, school for hitting the Minister of Home Affairs son. Turns out this is when I was in Kenya and I was a little kid and was like a whole there's a whole story behind that we don't need to talk about but this guy had the, the minister of home affairs tip tip um had all these wives and so many kids like i mean he had like 50 60 kids but he had oh, multiple I, I think wives I, was
1: it, this was in kenya right
0: yeah yeah but, but that's I, what I'm saying. I, I think this i, think I met
1: party. him he said don't, oh. don't do what i do do as i say right
0: yeah yeah. and so is that's that, the thing it pretty nah. much and but but that that so when when you talk about having multiple sexual partners we're not talking about like in our country here in the States, it's like someone's promiscuous and you go through your early 20s or teens and you have multiple partners because of your hormones and what, you know, you may be a bad boy or a bad girl, like you know, you naughty, naughty, you know. Um, this is a cultural tradition of a man, like oftentimes having multiple partners and multiple but, wives but, even.
1: But, but, but. It turns out that's not true according to the best data we have from the demographic ah. and health surveys. Yes, this is the startling fact uh, that nobody wanted to accept. When you compare Sub Saharan Africans with Western Europeans and North Americans, they have fewer lifetime number of sexual partners. And, um, and what's the other one? Yeah, they, they s- t- start to have sex at a later age, unless we're talking about early marriage. And of course, you're having sex that's in nice. marriage. Uh, President Museveni of Uganda then, and I'm sorry to say even now, uh, came up with a wonderful metaphor. He worked with a friend of mine that I met at Harvard, uh, Benan Nantulia, but he came up with a metaphor, zero grazing, which meant, uh, tether your bull, uh, in, in, <laughs> in his corral so he doesn't go wander off and impregnate yeah. all these cows. And, you know, this is a local metaphor. It was an indigenous, Endogenous uh, approach to AIDS. It was African. Uganda's knew exactly what was meant. And, um, so wow. that's what they do, did. And that's why HIV was coming down. So I, I, I had my World Bank report, which was put away in a lower shelf and pretended the uh, World Bank pretended it never happened. And a colleague of mine, he, he became a colleague, um, Norman Hurst. Was asked by United Nations AIDS Program, UNAIDS, to to do a study of the effectiveness of condoms in AIDS prevention, and he found pretty much what I found out that condoms played a a, a very small role. I'm not to, not to say they might not have played a, a larger role in Bangkok or even in the U.S., but in Africa they didn't, and and the statistics bore me out. And uh, his report to UNAIDS was. Shelves, and they pretended they never had never asked for this. You know, he he published his findings in a in a major peer re- review journal, and you know, we became friends and colleagues.
0: Hmm. I, I wonder if because when when Nancy, my mom, went to Kenya, um, she started doing you know journalism work out there. It started with um oh my gosh, am I, I'm going to get the wrong name? Kenyatta's death. And she went to actually photograph his, his funeral and got in mm-hmm. trouble for it. Yeah, um, literally. No, they took they took her camera and took her away I was trying to do that. But um at that time when we lived in Kenya, syphilis was just rife, you know, in, in the seventies. And I wonder yeah. if syphilis and, and through the African countries going through syphilis if and it was you know, it was the Europeans getting it too. Um I wonder if Uganda learned something from that syphilis going around in the seventies that helped them learn, um, to kind of abstain, you know, the zero grazing.
1: Evidently they were. And, um, you know, I could go on and on about the role of faith-based organizations and, um, but basically it was a delay of what we call sexual debut and reduction of multiple concurrent partners and my critics immediately said green has become a a holy roller he's become a a religious conservative he he's promoting abstinence only where do you get abstinence only from you know delaying sexual debut as long as you can um oh, anyway uh, i yeah. i you know um some of my colleagues turned against me and i it it, it hurt can't pretend yeah. it didn't hurt
0: does that now when you look at that when people read this, read, read your memoir. And I think it's a very important memoir that people read and it's, you know, understanding the role of even going through academia and choosing that career, which is not easy. Going to different countries is not easy for everyone. Um, understanding the different cultures, immersing yourself in it, but then rebelling against something. Right. And then that in its own way is almost like a, a a second version or second wave of, of the imposter syndrome. Right. So it's almost like they're trying to to prove that, you know what I mean?
1: I have to say, I, I didn't pursue an academic career. Um, Let's see. I I did a couple of, uh, you know, short term filling in for a professor on, on, on leave here and there universities of West Virginia, university of Kentucky and my my mentor said, listen, Ted, you did fieldwork at Suriname. No one's ever heard of Suriname, even anthropologists. So, uh, you know, why don't you see if you could use your family connections and somehow get a a gig with USAID, have them send you to a country in Africa, particularly, especially a larger one that people have heard of. And, um, you know, and then you'll come back and you'll be much more uh, marketable in academia. So I went off to do applied anthropology and... I never turned back. <laughs> I, yeah. I used to joke around. Well, you know, so, so, I'd I'd be asked, "Do you ever think about returning to academia?" And I'd sarcastically say, "Well, I suppose if Harvard University offered me a, a job and I didn't have to go through a a a job interview, then yeah, then maybe I'd consider it." That's sort of what happened, but that that's later on. But for, for most of my career, as you see in the book, I'm a I was a, an independent consultant. I was going, first first of all, all around Africa and the Caribbean and then Southeast Asia and South Asia and Latin America and, and uh, Eastern Europe and the Middle East. I was going everywhere as a consultant. And yeah. so by the time I, well, let me, let me tell you about Harvard. So because um, I was I was 56 years old when I returned to academia, you know, and I left it decades earlier. So I inherited some property in Maine and my wife said, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, why don't you get a job in Harvard? Then we could pretty much commute from here, you know, an hour and a half from Cambridge. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, well, <laughs> that sounds nice, but how would, how would a guy like me at 56 get a uh, any kind of a position at Harvard? Well, it happens that I, a, a listserv that I belong to on public health happened to have a, the first and the last ad I ever saw for the talk of me program. At Harvard School of Public Health, you may have a sip of water. And yeah. so I wrote to Harvard and said, I've got this idea. It's not popular. Um, that, uh, it's not, not about condoms or testing. Uh, it's about not having multiple concurrent partners and delaying sexual debut. But I don't have, you know, the, the it was all, the, the, um, application was due on Tuesday and it was like Saturday and, i said uh you know can i have an extra week and i got a letter back said yeah okay to take an extra week and uh so i i got into that program and that led to being offered uh, a couple of uh three-year you know renewable uh positions as a as a senior research scientist i, I should mention the john Templeton foundation because when i started at harvard you know i tapped into a little uh, Gates Foundation money on an AIDS project in Nigeria, but um, I, I didn't have much money, and I I, I did mm-hmm. some consultancy to, you know, to uh, keep keep things together. And mm. um, well, I've, I've, I've sort of lost my train of thought. Where was I?
0: No, no. We're, I think it's in because you were oh, saying yeah, like, yeah. You, know, you didn't do yeah. that much of academia, and I'm going. Yeah, you did. But I think what's important is that you did the field work and being and being a consultant or even anybody out there that's doing any kind of moving and immersing themselves in you know place like people put down traveling salespeople. And I'm I hate that because they actually know everything that's going on in communities as they travel. They know they get to go in the back door of restaurants. They get to really get the heartbeat of the people you know, and I know that sounds weird, but it's true. And I mean, I've been, yeah, well, there a whole, there's a whole, you know. there's a whole yeah. field called,
1: called, uh, social marketing. You know, if, if, if Coca-Cola can, can sell things, uh, anywhere in the world, uh, then, um, you know, th- and that's bad for you. Let's face it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But things, things like vitamins and contraceptives are good for you. So we can, we can use, um, people wow. into social marketing. And, and, and I worked in that field. Um, you know, we we can promote contraceptives going through, uh, you know, little down to people who push carts around and and sell things on the street. So I yeah. I did that. I should mention that I had credibility in when it comes to condoms because I'd promoted family planning and not just standard family planning and contraceptive social marketing, but even exotic ones involving indigenous or traditional healers in uh in selling over the counter contraceptives. So I I, I had uh, that credibility, and then when I, when I became a condom critic, and my colleagues in Family Planning said, you know, Ted's uh, he's turned against us. He's uh, mm-hmm. you know he's become a, again a religious conservative.
0: Well, when when just living over there, and and we lived with two different tribes at at one point in in Kenya, when um, Nancy worked for Joy um, Joy Adamson, and um, because I wasn't allowed to be on the actual camp in, in the encampment because they were rehabilitating a leopard at the time. And what we learned from the different cultures, yes, there were what people want to call like the, in, in South Africa is the Songoma and Tokoloji. Like there's right. a good one, the good witch, the bad witch. uh There's, you know, the witch doctors, however you want to call them, shamans here, what, everybody's got their terms. But what we learned was that it was, Actually, psychology almost. Um, it wasn't that they had these mystical powers like Merlin, right? It's like they're Merlins. Um, you know, it was like wizards and all of that. But it was really about the power of thinking and the power mindset. And that's what we kind of learned. And that was what they had like their own. Yep. Today we have influencers on Instagram. That's what we found they had within their tribal system. Where these were the yeah, belief,
1: belief in the efficacy of uh, of of the medicines and the healers. Uh, my, I mean, I'm trying to think of a quote from my, yeah, my my old mentor said long ago. Um, uh, I'm going to forget the quote now. Yeah, he said uh, like homeopathic and uh, what's the other allopathic medicine? You know, begin on two uh, diametrically opposed uh premises and yet mm-hmm. and yet they both work for some people so yeah. it's got to be the belief in the efficacy that is doing much of the healing we could get into a side discussion about the efficacy of um of phytomedicines, medicines herbal medicines there's there's some evidence and there's some in my book about uh uh you know herbal medicines for for example STds mm-hmm
0: And 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 that's the thing. It's every place is different too, and I think that's the other thing you bring out is every person is individual, and you definitely are your own individual. So the imposter syndrome that I think is very interesting for people to read because I feel like that actually propelled you further afield, like forward in that that helped your rebelliousness to do. I don't know. It's it's like a a, it's almost like a superpower.
1: Yeah, channel it in a, in the right way. Yeah. You know, I, I had a, I had, had a lot of trepidation about even publishing this book. I was especially worried about what my academic colleagues would think. I told my wife that if, if Russ Bernard, my mentor strongly advised me not to release this book, I wouldn't release it. I'd pull it from the publisher. So I, I sent Dr. Bernard my manuscript and I didn't hear back from him for what seemed like forever. And then, and then Russ phoned me and said he thought I wasn't his emails were not getting through to me for some reason. That's right. I wasn't seeing any response. uh, You know, he had the manuscript of my book. He quickly assuaged my anxiety by telling me that he liked my book a lot. Like he later told me through an intermediary, he would never read anything like it. So, um,
0: no, it's. it's, And and he told
1: me this. some of my colleagues might think the book is unprofessional and too self-absorbed, but he said, hey, to hell with them, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> no, I think you have a heck of a story, and I'm excited for our audience to dig into your memoir. Everyone, you can get it online. You know, get the paperback. Uh, go to bookshop dot org, all those places, and even go to your bookstore and ask them to get it for you. There's always that which we love. Um, there's, but, an audio, uh, there's an audio.
1: There's an audio book version. That's. Did you know?
0: No, that is huge. Most yeah. people I know are that's how they ingest their books is through audio.
1: You know, I, I happened to I happened to meet a blind guy socially about a, a week ago, and he said, "Oh, you know, I'd love to I'd love to read your book, but I'm blind." <laughs> and I said, uh, "He said, by any chance, is there, is there an audio version?" I said, "I just found out yesterday that there is. That's nobody fantastic. told nobody told me about it. I wasn't asked to read it. Some guy I've never heard of read the book, and you know, more power to him and to my publisher." but uh, he he mispronounces all pretty much all the foreign terms
0: well, yeah well i think <laughs> everyone's kenya or kenya depending on what country you come from either you know but i think i think the audio is huge i know that uh we have a a a friend who's also blind and actually tour, tours the world um talking about blind technology especially for the world and music and um and he's always like every time we do an author is like was it on audio? And I'm like, yes, it is. No, it's not. And I have, a lot of times the audio comes so much further down the road. It's like, uh, oh, I think it should all come out at once. That's just my. Yeah, I do
1: too. In. And I, I I don't know how it happened. And I mean, no one told me. And I, <laughs> I just happened I'm to good. find it. You know, my, my book's actually on about a dozen different uh, mm-hmm. b- a book, sell, book selling sites. One of them yeah. in Korean. That's
0: amazing. Thought,
1: now, how did that happen? Well, maybe they learned that I went to high school in Korea.
0: Yeah, and World Health. I mean, you're also. I think there's interesting connections with the World Bank too. Um, You know that you know when it's something global, it's of global interest, and we all have ties back into these magical places that have. You know, Africa is like what the most beautiful things in Africa are often the most poisonous, (laughs) Mm. the most deadly but and that's the thing and in you know you went to these places and and um, still continue to do so which is awesome and when you live there you know you can't go to africa on a two week safari and think you understand the you know the actual continent of africa by going right. on a two week safari you actually have to live there for a couple years i think and get your you know fingers in the dirt and yeah um, of course really i I I,
1: did. I I i had done that with the descendants of Enslaved African peoples in the Western Hemisphere in, in the Amazon forest in Suriname. That's my, my yeah. first field work. And that was, yeah. um, that was great field work. I mean, uh, you know, when, when, when the Dutch plantation owners caught runaway slaves, they would literally skin them alive or had them, had them drawn and quartered. You know, this is yeah. in the 16, 1700s, terrible torture and stuff. And here I was showing up as a, as a white guy. With my young wife, and my and my one-year-old son, and our large shaggy German Shepherd mixed dog, and uh, you know, and they accepted us willingly, open arms. When I first went to Swaziland, I wondered if I could do the same thing. And a few weeks into my ended up being a four-year job, I I went to a a community and I I asked the sub chief, uh, are there any uh, huts that aren't being used around here because my, my, my wife and I would like to, you know, maybe hang out on, oh yeah, uh, that one right over there is my, my grandson's off in school so you can have his, his hut. Like it's the most natural thing in the world. Can you, yeah. can you imagine? I have an anthropologist friend, John Lenoir, who did field work in a neighboring tribe in Suriname. He's from a small town in Oklahoma. He said he asks himself, what would his people think and his neighbors if a, if a dark, black-skinned person showed up with a notebook and a tape recorder, said, "I'm, I'm here to study you people."
0: <laughs> I got any it. spare, I,
1: got any spare houses?
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, I love, I love that because you know it is, it is different. I mean, when we were in Kenya, I mean, there was very few white people, in the, and at that point, you know, Nancy is a single mom, you know, single woman in Africa, and I mean, to even open a P.O. box, you'd have to go on the street and find a guy and have them a, a, a single husband. mom
1: like, like, you know, like, like
0: uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Oh, boy, that that's going to be a big drama. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, she, you know, going was just different. And she did, what, there was a very British colonial culture there. And they had servants who oh, yeah. would ring bells at the table. And Nancy refused to do it. And she got, you know, basically got herself ousted from the white colonials when we lived in Kenya. Oh, they good for her yeah yeah good for her she, she, you did everyone did have servants and if you didn't they would rob you at times because it was like hey if you're going to be here you need to put back into the into the community and, and culture and um back into the into economy, economy. So yeah so many people need work yeah yeah when, so we when,
1: my, when my mm-hmm. wife and i go ahead
0: no you go ahead i'll go just ahead. say
1: when, when my wife and i were in swazi dan um this is unusual for USAID contractors, but they thought would it be a, an interesting idea to give, ho- <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, provide housing for contractors similar to the way ordinary Swazis live. This is not a thatch hut, but you know, middle-class Swazis. Mm-hmm. So we had this little humble abode, and uh, you know, all these all these women were knocking on our back door, wanting to be our maid, our cook, whatever. And we said, no, we don't want one, and and we were under pressure and our neighbors who worked on the same project were under pressure. So we decided to, uh, to share a cook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how we got around that.
0: Yeah, no, we had to. And, you know, Nancy had, um, uh, one, one gentleman worked for for her and, um, she like, you know, at dinner time let him sit at the table and it freaked everybody out and she was learning from him and, and it was became a big deal. Um, but in South Africa, it was a little bit different. But it was Kenya that was really super. You well, yeah, you know, we had
1: uh, we we had white white Kenyans uh, settlers in Kenya that, after the Mal Mal Rebellion, mm-hmm. and and thereafter, came down to South Africa and and to Swaziland. So I mm-hmm. I I I know some white Kenyans who moved to Swaziland, you know, to do farming what they had done in Kenya. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, Kenya—it's a magical. I mean, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania—that whole area. I mean, I, I love Africa. I mean, I'd live there again if we could. You know, it's—it's it's just um, it, it's a very real place, and people are—you know, there is the sense, and and it was what you were talking about about you know getting the the hut. You know, there is a, a village, and that's what when we came over back home to this country in the states, and I mean, we went to a grocery store, and didn't understand how to even buy things here because it was just an abundance oh just
1: overwhelmed
0: overwhelmed i'm like my first thing is i looked at at nancy and i said why do we have and this is so funny because i did this last year with my best friend from high school came over to the states and she lives in england now but i took her to a store and she said she went to exactly the same place i did and said the exact same thing and i almost fell over The first thing we did, we went to go get butter. That is one of your basic food things, right? And I looked at Nancy and I'm like, why why do we have so much butters? What's wrong with their butter here? Well, now I know. Um, But I I mean, that was my first instinct is why do we have 10 butters? Butter is butter. Why do we have all these butters, butter choices? My my, my friend came over. She went right to the butters thing because we were all uh, sharing a little vacation home together went to the butter and she looked at me, she says, why do you have so many butters? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. why do we, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's just this, but anyway, there, there was the village overabundance Yeah, overabundance, but the village, there's some principles that we can learn from these cultures. Um, there's a simplicity and there's a, a community culture a village, um, that really I, just works. I don't know how to explain it to people, really. Let, let me
1: ask you, Lisa, have you been around um, American Indians in the Western Hemisphere, whether in the U.S. or Central America or anywhere else?
0: Um, in the U.S. a little bit, yes. Uh huh. Absolutely.
1: Because um, I, I when I lived in, in Suriname, so you have the Maroons, descendants of uh, escaped slaves, and you have the Amerindians, the, the trios, the Arawaks, and so forth, and I noticed that they were very reserved, and mm-hmm. um you know they didn't throw open their arms and say take that hut whereas people of african descent there and in mother africa itself uh, and i've worked in nigeria and liberia and you know a number of countries in africa as a consultant that people were always open and friendly uh and and you know I, and i'm thinking uh, let's take suriname you know if i was a, an amerindian as they're called there. I would probably hate white folks just you know destroyed the forest destroyed (laughs) or destroying our cultures yeah but if i was a descendant of a runaway slave i would hate white people but they didn't yeah and they, they they judge people by how they were today and uh it's in my book you know the very first trip i took uh this storm blew us to a village we weren't prepared to stop at and uh Terrible, you know, rain like you have in the rainforest. And this chief was, you know, going on and on haranguing in in the Matawai language. I didn't know what he was saying. I thought he was saying, "Your ancestors enslaved mine, and we hate you. Get out of here." And and what he was saying is, the ancestor spirits have sent one of you, at least one of you among among the four in our group, here to come to understand our ways and tell white people we we don't hate them. We just want to be free. I said yes. that's that's what I'm going to do for the next few years. I'm going to live with these people and learn their language. And I love the idea of, you know, hearing from the ancestral spirits. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. this will open up a magical world. And as you know, there's some um, paranormal experiences in my book.
0: Well, there are. You know, you have to be open to it. You have to be. I think it's when you, I think the U.S. and you know, Western cultures are very um, cluttered with sound and noise and um, energy that is uh, like a, a, oh, I'm going to get in trouble, but it's almost like a, a greed thing that's going on. So there's this, this other layer of, this sounds weird, but it's other layer of energy that is complete BS that we need to get rid of and strip away and get to the reality. And when you live, um, and, and this, country, the cultures, the Native American cultures, Black cultures, uh, the Creoles, Cajuns, they understand the times. They, there's like this, um, there's a, they're more connected as community, I feel, and, and in all cultures around the world, when you have to band together against anything really bad happening, wars and, um, skirmishes, and, uh, maybe it's a, an epidemic or something, right? So we've been through that with COVID around the world, right? But yeah. we get right back onto that train of, you know second homes and ten cars or whatever it is i'm I'm exaggerating people sorry but yeah. um but you're making your point um yeah I'm trying to really kind of get that point because we seem that we have to exaggerate everything to make a point in this country whereas when you're in reality um you know growing up in in Africa there were some very i mean there was exactly like you're saying paranormal experiences there's um But I don't think they're paranormal. I just think that we're more aware because you're living a simpler life, but simpler doesn't mean stupid. Simpler means that your eyes are wide open and you actually experience things in an uncluttered way. And on the Western front, we tend to clutter so our senses aren't as clear, perhaps. And
1: and we fear um, being judged by our colleagues. Um, I, I found out, you know, while writing this book, what do you know? There's a journal of paranormal, uh, yeah, paranormal anthropology, and I flipped through an issue, and these th- these are the kind of stories that anthropologists will tell at a annual conference after, uh, a, you know, at a party in the hotel after a number of drinks. They'll tell some weird stories that they would never publish for fear of being thought crazy or gone gone too native and he's ir- irretrievable. But, uh, yeah, so that, uh, I, I think I, I was maybe open to, uh, open-minded living with, to begin with, the, the Maroons of Suriname to, to be open to this stuff and not to, not to fear it. The, yeah. the first, the, the first out-of-body experience that I described on my book, I was at George Washington University and, um, uh, I my, my first feeling was uh, a re- emotional reaction was God this is I, I'm I'm going crazy this is terrible I uh, my my, my face was against the wall uh and yet I was looking all around the room and yet my eyes were f- against the wall how could this be happening then I said wait a second maybe this is the spiritual experience you've been kind of hoping for your whole life and maybe it's happening now and I went on to have several
0: those. Those, I have that all the time, even when I'm driving, which is really scary. It's really scary. Yet it is a way, it's a, it's like having a second, second body in a way. Um, yeah, it is.
1: I mean, I, I've come to believe in astral bodies. When this happened to me, I had no vocabulary. I didn't have a, a paradigm in which to, you know, understand this, but I later read up on parapsychology and whatever you want to call it, psi phenomena and, uh, yeah, so I, I had a vocabulary.
0: I, I think I really do believe it is about um, understanding energies and and an anthropo- anthropology. When you're starting to dig around things, you're, you're digging into cultures, you're digging into history, you're digging into things that, I mean, even the, the movie The Exorcist, have you mm-hmm. read about all that? What happened to The Exorcist? How people died on the set every time they tried to remake it, especially when they started going into Egypt and going into the ancient ruins areas oh, yeah, I, I think
1: I did hear that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff mm. happens, but I think when we become, you know, over civilized, that's where we're we're stripping away these 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 magical yeah, we, we, things that we, right, we, we actually have.
1: We become logical positivists and we have to look at things scientifically. And if things happen that are outside of that paradigm, we get frightened. But I, I taught myself from that first one when I was, uh, transferring to GW university to like not be afraid. And, uh, maybe the most remarkable thing, uh, is when my good friend from high school in Korea, uh, you know, we, we ended up back in Washington we both had PhDs and uh he came down with cancer and pretty soon we knew he was going to die and he said listen if there's any way i can we talked about eschatology life after death he said if there's any proof of existence beyond the grave i'll i'll let you know so i i was in the Dominican Republic in my hotel i'd just gotten into bed now i i have to admit i I'd, I'd heard i got a phone call from his wife saying that, that Wayne had died that morning. So here it was evening. We're on essentially the same time zone. And, and Wayne floated into my room and told me through telepathy, I suppose he, that he was no longer in pain and he was breaking all kinds of rules to even be there communicating with me. But isn't that the basis of our friendship in high school? We broke the rules. And then he <laughs> asked me, then he asked me if I had a, um, uh, what is it? Some uh, yeah. If I had a modem, and this was 1986 or seven, I didn't know what a modem was. I said, he said, "Well, we'll get a modem, and I'll see if I can communicate with you that way." Wow! And you know that that was that. Uh, and ne- never any any more communication from Wayne. But this was hours after he died. You know, in, in the middle of the Caribbean, and he died in Northern Virginia. So I have a few what? stories like that, and I, I don't. I don't know how to explain them. I try to talk about uh, William James and blah, blah, blah. But, I, I you know, who knows?
0: Well, you know, that it's interesting because the military was, they had the Internet in the 80s. You know, we just didn't know about it as civilians. You know, the 80s, you know, it wasn't Google, you know. And we, you know yeah, that-
1: my, my, my mentor, Russ Bernard, was one of the early, early guys, uh, you know, using phones to uh use the internet uh
0: isn't that wild
1: that old that old system you know, co- talking with his colleague at cambridge university in england so i i wow. yeah I, I, I i'm i was not and am not an early adopter of new technology
0: well we've had to i mean with nancy you know my mom um had a magazine in south africa and she was she had what was called the Mothership. She had one of the first Apple computers. In fact, she, only, she printed out her own film for our magazine over there, or her magazine over there. Uh-huh. And, and, I mean, if you had to fix something, we were in Port Elizabeth. If you had a computer problem, we had to fly people in from Joburg to yeah. fix her computer. And then she went to print. And I remember she put the magazine on a disc, when back in the day, called the floppy disc. Yeah, yeah, And I took remember. it to the printer. And the printer, we drove yeah. to Cape Town. And the printers looked at her like she was absolutely insane. They're like, we don't do this technology yet. And she just, you know, moves ahead, (laughs) not thinking these people haven't caught up yet. And then we, we really thought we were going to be way behind when we came back to the States and found out we really weren't. So it was kind of a, it was, it's very interesting about when I think I, I, one thing I want to really instill in people is your, your memoir also reminds me to, to travel it's so important to travel and truly travel and connect with the cultures you know do your yeah. resort thing and everything but these experiences that you have had um you can't get it i mean other than reading your book and other books right you can't get it as much as if you can travel yourself and go yourself and yeah totally agree one for experience it. in your life this is the biggest education you can ever have and it's yeah. unexplainable education like we're talking about. People are going to go, you guys got all woo-woo. Well, so what? Um, woo-woo woo's not a bad deal. Um, so what? So long as you're not hurting anyone, right? So um, it's okay to expand our minds and souls and beings. And, and travel will do that. And it will uh, serve you up the unexplainable. And that is the part of the magic. That's why we have different languages. But we're still all talking the same language. Yeah. So, um yeah, travel, 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 uh, whether it's for work, whether it's for fun, but get outside the typical resort because that is just another fake little city of where you just came from, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, like, like if you're, if you're a student, uh, high school or college, you know, get, get a semester abroad experience and try to live with a local family.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That'd those great exchanges way to get started.
1: And of course, those the Peace am- Corps is another great way.
0: Yeah. It's so cool. We do have opportunities out there, but Ted, I really appreciate you joining on the show. Uh, this has been such an amazing conversation and everyone, I want them to know it. it's Edward Green is the author and the book is called On the Fringe. That's such a good title too, by the way. On the Thank Fringe, you. uh, not on the, you know, cause I used to say fringe for bangs on your hair. <laughs> by the way, yeah. On the Fringe. Anyway, but On the Fringe Confessions of a Maverick anthropologist. It is out now. Go get it whether you want to read it on in, in paper, digitally or listen to it. It's out. So thank you so much Ted.
1: Okay, Lisa, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio. Keep up with our shows at bigblendradio.com.